So we start with Leviticus uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Then we're skipping forward to uh, verses 39 to 47. If an animal that you are allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches its carcass will be unclean till evening. Anyone who eats some of its carcass must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up the carcass must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Every creature that moves along the ground is to be regarded as unclean. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves along the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on its many feet. It is unclean. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, and every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the, clean, the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Uh, we're moving forward now to the New Testament to uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, uh, Pete, for your welcome, and uh, thank you, everyone, for welcoming us here. Uh, for Rachel and for me, um, we're in that sort of life stage where, in years past, people used to say to our kids, oh, you're, you're David Williams' son, but now we're in the life stage where, and we've had it this afternoon, oh, you're Sam Williams' father. So, we are Sam Williams and uh, Mel- Melanie Williams' dad and mum, father-in-law, mother-in-law, and it's a great privilege to be here. Um, Thanks for asking me to preach on Leviticus 11 to 15. I've had fun trying to get my head around it. 
Let me pray. We're going to need God's help as we come to this passage, so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these chapters of Scripture that we're looking at this afternoon, chapter 11 right through to chapter 15. Um, We pray that you'd help us to understand what they mean uh, for us today and what they can teach us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd give us hearts and minds that are quick to hear and obey your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when... Pete invited me to uh, speak on this passage. He mentioned that maybe my cross-cultural experience might be helpful as we approach this passage. And I'm sure what was in his mind, and probably in all of our minds as we heard the Bible reading, is that these verses do feel very cross-cultural, I think. Um, The reading, uh, we couldn't read the whole of chapters 11 to 15. To be honest, I reckon I picked a reading from the least confronting part of the chapters that are in front of us. Um, The chapters that follow talk about menstruation, childbirth, genital discharges, skin lesions, scabby sores, and mildew. So this this is earthy stuff in these verses, and it raises, I think, some very big questions for us. Why does God care about all of this? Why does the Bible care about cleanness and uncleanness? Why does the Old Testament have so many laws about what you can and can't eat? Uh, So many laws about bodily discharges and skin infections and things like that. Well, those are important questions, and to try and help us get into that, I'm going to read you an abstract from a medical journal So this is an academic peer-reviewed article that was published in the Journal of the International AIDS Society from June 2014, so eight or so years ago. Here we go. The customs of widow cleansing and widow inheritance are practiced in several communities throughout sub-Saharan Africa. In the Nyanza province of Kenya, according to tradition, Luo widows are expected to engage in sexual intercourse with a cleanser without the use of a condom in order to remove the impurity ascribed to her after her husband's death. Luo couples, including widows, are also expected to engage in sex before certain agricultural activities, building homes, conducting funerals or weddings, and other significant cultural and social events. Widows who are inherited for the purpose of fulfilling cultural obligation have a higher prevalence of HIV than those who remain uninherited or who are inherited for the purpose of companionship. So this isn't ancient history. In traditional Luo culture, and still widely practiced, not just in Luo culture, but in many places across sub-Saharan Africa, if a woman's husband dies, she becomes ritually unclean and impure. And she can only be made clean by having sexual intercourse, either with her brother-in-law or with a man who is employed as a cleanser. And in many cultures around the world today, sexual activity is a place in which you work out and express your religion. And that was certainly the case in the Canaanite religions of the Old Testament. If you worshipped the Baals or the Ashtoreths, 
They were fertility religions. And what the book of Leviticus is trying to do is to equip God's people to live in the land of Canaan all those centuries ago. So the nation of Israel lived in a world that had its own religious culture. And those religious cultures provide a kind of substructure to much of the Old Testament. So what the Old Testament is doing is equipping God's people to engage with the substructure or the values of the surrounding culture that they were living in. Now, Leviticus, I think, seems a strange and distant book to many of us and to many Christians uh, in the West. But actually, Leviticus is an exciting and thrilling book for many Christians around other parts of the world today. A friend of mine was at a conference in the Northern Territory. Uh, he heard a Pitjantjara Aboriginal woman talking about her work translating the book of Leviticus into Pitjantjara. And she expressed a deep sense of joy and delight and satisfaction from getting into Leviticus. Because for her, she'd found a place in the biblical text that had sacred stories that she resonated with. This is a book that's about ritual and ceremony and symbolism and land and animals and tribe. And that is her world, even if it's not our world. So Leviticus seems strange to us, yes, but maybe that's because we're strange, not because Leviticus is strange. Maybe the fact that we don't get this book reflects more about us and our culture in the secular West than it reflects on the text of Leviticus. We'll come back to that idea and try and give it a bit more focus towards the end. So let me outline where we're going to go. Um, I'm gonna start off by trying to give you an overview of the content of these chapters. We didn't read them, but I'm gonna run through and um, try and explain what they're about. Then we'll move on to think about what Leviticus meant for its original audience and what its significance was. And then we'll think about what Leviticus teaches us as followers of Jesus today. So first of all, what does Leviticus 11 to 15 say? Well, the first thing I think we need to recognize is that these chapters form part of a story or a narrative. It's very easy for us to read Leviticus as a rule book, but as well as unpacking a whole bunch of laws, which clearly Leviticus does, it also tells a story. And the story and the laws in Leviticus um, are all on the same theme, which is the theme of holiness. And the story particularly focuses on the role of the priests. And there's a special attention given to Aaron and to his two unfortunate sons, Nadab and Abihu. In the immediate preceding chapter, which maybe you did last week, I don't know because I wasn't here, in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu disobey God's instruction. And what happens? They are consumed by fire in the tabernacle. It's kind of Indiana Jones stuff. 
And the point of the narrative arc of Leviticus is to teach us about God's holiness. And Nadab and Abihu make it very clear that holiness is not some airy-fairy, vague concept in the book of Leviticus. This is a refining, purifying fire. And as Old Testament readers, we know that just back in the book of Exodus, Moses uh, is told that if he were to see God face to face, he would be instantly destroyed. And so God hides him in a crevice in the rock and puts his hand over the crevice so that Moses only gets the briefest of glimpse of God's back just as he moves away. That is all that Moses the prophet can possibly bear. So the laws of Leviticus are written within a story that is emphasizing God's holiness. And God's holiness stands at the heart of these chapters from our reading. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. So God's desire for his people is that they should be holy. And because of God's fiery, refining holiness, judgment falls on Nadab and Abihu, and they are destroyed. And holiness is so powerful and significant and important for Israel that Leviticus makes a further distinction. And that is a distinction between clean and unclean. It came in chapter 10. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, have a look at chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. So the laws that fall in the passages we're looking at today teach us about three key categories. Holy, clean, unclean. So cleanness is a state that sits between holiness and uncleanness. And in Leviticus, cleanness is this normal condition of most things and most people. And sanctification can make the clean into the holy, while pollution can turn the clean into the unclean. But at a really fundamental level, the point of all of these laws is to try and prevent the unclean and the holy from touching each other. Because if that happens, there is destruction. So these chapters focus particularly on uncleanness. And the Israelites need to know what will make them unclean because God's holiness is a big deal and because the unclean and the holy must never come into contact. So here's a very quick bird's eye view of these chapters. In chapter 11, we read about clean and unclean animals. So the Israelites are only allowed to eat certain types of meat. Uh, As we heard, they can eat animals with divided hooves 
that chew the cud. They can eat fish with fins and scales. They can eat insects with wings and jointed legs. Animals that fall outside of those categories are unclean and must not be eaten. And if the Israelites touch the carcass of any dead animal, then touching death also makes them unclean, unclean for 24 hours. And you make yourself clean from that uncleanness by ritual of washing and cleansing. That's chapter 11. Chapter 12 is about purification from the bleeding that comes in childbirth. A woman is unclean for a set period of time after she gives birth to a child, 33 days if she has a boy, 66 days if she has a girl. I don't know why, please don't ask that question in the Q&A. She's made clean through a ritual of sacrifice. That tradition lingered long. There is a service for the purification of women after childbirth in the Book of Common Prayer of the Anglican Church. Chapters 13 and 14 are a whole long, long section about skin disorders and skin diseases. And there's a whole set of detailed instructions to help the priest decide whether a skin defect makes a person unclean or not. And then, if they have been unclean, how the priest can then decide that they are clean again and how that cleanness comes. Or, in an absolute worst-case scenario, and the chapter goes on and on and on and very reluctantly comes to the end point, if they remain in a state of permanent uncleanness, presumably leprosy, then they are excluded from the community completely and live outside the camp. And they have to wander around um, with their hair uncut, shouting, unclean, unclean. There's also instructions about uncleanness from mildew and mold on clothes and in the house. And again, we're given rules to show us how the unclean can be made clean through the ritual of washing and sacrifice. Chapter 15 is all about the uncleanness that comes from bodily discharges with a particular focus on menstruation and sex. Those discharges make men and women unclean and the person is made clean again through the rituals of washing and sometimes of sacrifice. And at the end of that long section of teaching in chapters 11 to 15, then in chapter 16, Leviticus picks up the narrative arc again, the storyline. It takes us back to Nadab and Abihu and introduces us to the Day of Atonement. But that's for next week. So what does Leviticus 11 to 15, second point, what does Leviticus 11 to 15 mean for the original readers? What does it mean in the Old Testament? What was the significance of this for Israel? Well, remember my Pichinjara indigenous Bible translator finding huge joy in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus resonated for her because of the way that it links land and animals and religious ritual 
and symbolism. And her identity as an indigenous person flows from a sense of connection of all of those things. Her sense of connectedness to land and animals and the totems that relate to animals set her apart and traditionally would have given her a clear spirituality. And for the people of Israel, these chapters shape and create their very sense of identity. And they continue to shape the fundamental sense of identity of Jewish people today in many ways. Because what these laws do is that they set apart the people of Israel. That language of set apartness is fundamentally important to these chapters. These chapters are all about holiness. And holiness in the Bible is about being set apart, being put to one side as special. So the people of Israel would have understood that these chapters in Leviticus are setting them apart and a part of how God enables them to witness to the wider world. And these categories of holy, clean, and unclean shape what it means for them to be set apart. In the same way, the people of Israel themselves are divided into holy, clean, and unclean. The priests are holy. Most of the people are clean most of the time. Some people are unclean temporarily and can be made clean again, and a tiny number, tragically, are permanently unclean. So the people are divided into those three categories, and the animal life of the community is also divided into holy, clean, and unclean. So holy animals are animals that can be sacrificed in the tabernacle. Clean animals are animals that can be eaten, and unclean animals are animals that cannot be eaten or touched. And all sorts of aspects of everyday life for the people of Israel are focused on this separation between clean and unclean. So your everyday life as an Israelite in the Old Testament was focused around how you touched food, how you washed it, how you washed up things around clean and unclean. This stuff dominated how you actually lived your life. The practical realities of ordinary everyday life were all about keeping clean and unclean apart. And so you were living in that reality and you were being constantly, constantly reminded that you, Israel, are set apart. You are clean and separated from the unclean Gentile world. One of the commentators says, the division into clean, edible foods and unclean, inedible foods corresponds to the division between holy Israel and the unclean Gentile world. And that sense of set-apartness 
is even more deeply reinforced by the profound difference between Israel's religion and the religion of the Canaanites. So the laws of purity in Leviticus make it very clear that you cannot approach God after sexual activity. Now, that doesn't mean that sex is wrong or inappropriate for God's people in the Old Testament. We know from Genesis that marriage is God's good gift to Adam and Eve. And it's a beautiful thing uh, for humans to practice sex within the context of marriage. Nevertheless, in Leviticus, marital or any other form of sex can never become part of the religious ritual of the people of Israel. And that reality was profoundly countercultural in the context of Canaanite religion. And so, as the people of Israel practiced their religion and lived this set apart life, they were profoundly, completely different to their neighbors, their customs, their rituals, their obedience to these laws spelled out relentlessly, daily, over and over again. You're different. You worship a different God, a holy God. The God of Israel is not a fertility God. He's not worshipped through sex. He's a holy God. And he can only be approached in purity. Now, it's key that we remember the theological progression that Leviticus is unpacking for us. First of all, God chose Israel. Second, God rescued Israel. Third, God gave Israel the covenant, the law. So that as his chosen and redeemed and rescued people, then they might be set apart. So Israel's obedience to these Levitical laws does not in any way earn them a relationship with God. Rather, Israel's obedience to these laws is a way of expressing a relationship that they've been given by grace. And as they obey these laws about cleanness and uncleanness, they're constantly reminded that they are set apart as God's chosen, rescued people. So what does Leviticus 11 to 15 teach us today? Well, let's start by saying some important but obvious things. The New Testament clearly teaches that the food laws are not binding on Christian people. In Mark chapter seven, Jesus declares all food clean. In the book of Acts, Peter has a vision of various unclean animals and hears God saying to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And just as the food laws are not binding on Christians, neither are the laws about ritual uncleanness. None of these laws about skin blemishes and discharges and bleeding and mildew and all of this stuff, none of it is binding on Christians today. But that doesn't mean, I think, that we can snip Leviticus 11 to 15 out of our Bibles. 
These chapters are worth reading and worth preaching on. Let me suggest three applications for us. First application is that we should rejoice in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's really important that we understand why the Levitical laws are not binding on us. It's not just that they've become out of date or countercultural. There's a much more important theological reason why we're not tied to these laws. So remember that the laws in Leviticus are a symbol of God's choice of Israel. God chose only Israel and set them apart as his holy people. And the Israelites restrict their diet and their behavior so that ordinary everyday life constantly reminds them of this set-apartness and this difference. But now in the New Testament, God's wonderful salvation, his great rescue, is freely available to all people everywhere. The nation of Israel is no longer the sole focus of God's grace. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, has provided atonement. Wait for next week. He's provided atonement once and for all. And his work of atonement makes God's rescue equally available to Jew and Gentile alike. And that means that these laws of cleanness and uncleanness have lost their theological purpose. Their purpose, remember, was to keep Israel and the Gentiles apart as being distinctly different. But now through Jesus' death on the cross, Jew and Gentile are united in the Lord Jesus Christ. Together we are holy, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. The hostility and the enmity, the hatred that used to exist between Jew and Gentile, that hatred through the cross has been destroyed. So Paul says in Ephesians that the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down by the cross. So rejoice in the cross. Second, be holy with clean hands and a pure heart. Perhaps the most important lesson from these chapters, in fact, uh, perhaps the most important lesson from the whole book of Leviticus is about holiness. Now, we don't express our holiness through following food laws, but holiness is just as important for us today as it was for the people of Israel because because we worship the same God. We worship a holy God. We worship a God whose total purity and awesome power will, will, will destroy us. God's presence will destroy sinful humanity unless our sin is dealt with. Old Testament Israel's fundamental identity was as the set-apart, holy people of God, and our identity as followers of Jesus is exactly the same. 1 Peter 2 tells us, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, 
so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Now in the Old Testament, the people of Israel expressed their set-apartness by obedience to rituals of cleanness and uncleanness. But as people who live in the new covenant, we know that God's law is no longer written on tablets of stone, but rather is written on our hearts by God's Holy Spirit. And so the holiness that we live out as God's people today is the holiness that flows from transformed hearts, filled, empowered, strengthened by God's Spirit. But in a secular culture, we live in a secular culture, that truth, I think, is a big risk for us. Remember how Leviticus resonates for the pitch and jar of Bible translator, but perhaps doesn't resonate for us today. Perhaps that's because we are the ones who are strange. For our Aboriginal sister in Christ, her expression of faith is deeply embodied. And she brings her faith to impact on every aspect of her ordinary everyday life. And for her, being a Christian engages her with symbol and ritual and ceremony and understanding of land and animals. But as people who are living in a secular, secular culture, the risk for us is that we just express our faith in our thoughts and feelings. The, there's a risk for us, I think, that Christian faith is just about ideas. So we understand that Jesus gives us pure hearts, but we risk keeping our faith in our hearts and not embodying it. We need to worship God with clean hands and a pure heart. And Leviticus calls us to an embodied holiness. It shows us how the people of Israel worked out their faith in ordinary everyday ways that impacted literally on every moment of their day. And the New Testament calls us to the same radical holiness. Thirdly, third application, one way we work out what that radical holiness looks like is by touching the unclean. Touching the unclean. In Leviticus, if you touch something that is unclean, then you become unclean. If you touch a dead body, you're unclean. If you touch someone with a skin disease, you become unclean. If I touch someone with bleeding or a discharge, I become unclean. And then onto the pages of the New Testament walks this man, Jesus, the Messiah, and he touches a man with leprosy and Jesus is not made unclean. The man with leprosy is healed. Jesus touches a dead body, Jairus' daughter, and Jesus is not made unclean. 
the child is raised to life. Jesus touches a woman who's had vaginal bleeding for 12 years and he's not made unclean. Her life is transformed. Jesus touches the unclean and makes them clean. And down through Christian history, God's people have followed that example. God's people have touched those who society considers unclean in order to love them and to care for them. Now, of course, my touch is not the powerful healing touch of the Son of God. But nevertheless, God's people have understood that following Jesus means to touch the unclean and to love the world with the radical embodied love of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the organizations that I've had particular links with over the years is the International Nepal Fellowship, or INF. When INF first gained access to Nepal in 1952, uh, a band of expatriate and Nepali Christians trekked across the India border up towards Pokhara, and they went past a place called Malunga, which was um, a leprosy prison, essentially. I was going to say hospital, but there was no treatment happening there. And when the International Nepal Fellowship first arrived in Pokhara, they were given a plot of land that these leprosy victims had been taken from when they were moved to Malunga. That became the home of the Green Pastures Leprosy Hospital. And if you get a hold of the copy of the history of the International Nepal Fellowship, beautiful little book, it has a picture on the front cover of a man holding a Nepali Bible with a radiant, radiant smile on his face. And the smile is so captivating that it takes you a moment to notice that he has no fingers on his hands. He's called Chandra Bahadur Chetri. He was in Malunga and was brought by missionaries, by Christians, to Green Pastures Leprosy Hospital, where his leprosy was treated, but the radiant smile on his face is from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He found spiritual healing. And if you ask pastors across Western Nepal today, you will discover that in nearly every pastor's story, if you trace back their genealogy, somewhere in their history you will find leprosy. Because touching the unclean brought the healing and the power of the gospel into countless families in an extraordinary way. Christians touched the unclean. They reached across massive social, cultural, and religious divides. And they brought the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray that we would have that same vision for the love of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus touches the unclean and makes it clean. Thank you that he has touched us, touched our unclean lives and made us holy. And we pray that you would help us to live for him with that radical call to love our neighbours. And we pray in his name.
Amen.